Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. We've got a big show for you. This is a brand new hot topic coming right off the press. The Environmental Working Group, or EWG, has just published their 2020 Shopper's Guide to Pesticides in Produce. And we actually have two guests today, two scientists from the EWG. We have Alexis Temkin. She earned her PhD um, in Marine Biomedicine and Environmental Sciences. And we have Dr. Tom Scalligan. He earned his PhD in Biomedical Sciences, and they are going to be walking Walking us through uh, this shopper's guide to pesticides and produce, and I'm really excited to have them on. Dr. Temkin, we're going to start with you. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Uh, but before we dive into the details found in EWG's 2020 Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce, give us a little bit of background on how long EWG has been publishing this guide and what the purpose of the publication is. Hi, yeah, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So EWG, really, our main focus on a lot of the work we do, not just pesticides, is really about consumer education and putting out information that, you know, everyday people can use um, in their daily lives. And so with the Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce, we've been releasing this data every year since 2004. And really the main goal is to educate the public on fruits and vegetables with the highest pesticide residues and really the health concerns that surround sort of pesticides and fruits and vegetables, why they might want to be concerned with that, um, and then most importantly, what consumers can do to really make the best decisions for their families. Mm-hmm. And I am a, a big proponent of all of the resources available on EWG.org. Um, some of my routine listeners probably know I kind of have a green crush on your organization because you put out so much good information <laughs> and it's it's all science-based and the scientists um, who and the analysts who put together these consumer guides are top-notch. Dr. Galligan, I'd like to go to you now. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I think it's really important. Thank you so much. You bet. Um, I want to make sure that our listeners know when they start to hear the data that we're going to be going through that's in the guide, I think it's really important to establish the veracity of the data that's used for this guide so our listeners understand that it is trustworthy. So can you tell us about the methodology that's used to both access and analyze the data? Absolutely, yeah, and that's a really important point. So, um, Understanding where the data are, com- are coming from is a really um, important part of being able to trust it. So these data come from the USDA, the Department of Agriculture. Every year they select a variety of, of foods and fruits and vegetables and some processed goods to look at the pesticides in them. And th- importantly, they process them like consumers would at home before testing them for pesticides. So if it would be peeled, they peel it, if it should be washed, they wash it. So the numbers that these tests turn back are a good indication of what consumers would experience when eating these foods at home. So they, they do this every year. They, they select some foods, they test them for pesticides, and then they make those data available online. And then we take those data and do some analysis on them and basically look at 
the number of pesticides on these various foods, the amounts or the concentrations, and how frequently uh, pesticides were detected on each of these foods. And together, all of those different sort of metrics we use to rank foods based on their overall pesticide load. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a couple of key points I want to underscore. The first is that EWG is gleaning this data from the federal government's testing. It's not independent testing that people might be suspicious of. You know, sometimes that happens. And and secondly, that when the data is reported, it's not just the fruits and vegetables right off the ground or right off the plant. Um, they've been washed. They've been peeled, just like you said. And I just want to make sure that our listeners are really clear on that as we go to the next question with Dr. Temkin. Tell us about this year's Dirty Dozen. Which produce made the list and what types of pesticides were found on them? Yeah, so this is sort of getting right into it. You know, everybody's always excited to see what the Dirty Dozen list every Mm -hmm. year is and and how it's changed. Um, So like Thomas said, you know, we rank basically 47 different fruits and vegetables um, from the USDA data. And then the top 12 of that list is what makes up the Dirty Dozen every year. Mm-hmm. And so depending on what the USDA tested um, that year, it can sometimes cause the Dirty Dozen to shift from the year before because we now have new data on, let's say, a crop that hadn't been tested for a few years um, that may indicate um, it should be up higher on the list. So um, this year's Dirty Dozen was actually pretty similar to last year. And the top five, um, I can go through the whole list, but the top five include strawberries, spinach, kale, nectarines, apples, and grapes. And kale was actually a new addition last year. So this was sort of one of those cases where kale actually hadn't been tested in about a decade. And so it hadn't been on our um, dirty dozen list for a while. And then last year they tested samples, um, or two years ago, sorry, and then they retested again last year. Um, And it fell at number three on our dirty Mm -hmm. dozen list. And there were a few things that were pretty um, surprising. So so one of the things we found was that nearly 60% of the samples of kale had detectable levels of this pesticide called Daxel, which um, has actually been classified as a possible human carcinogen, and it's not approved for use in Europe. So that was something we found particularly surprising with with kale when it was added to the list um, last year. Mm -hmm. And... Some other cases, you know, spinach is also a similar green, and that's at number two. And spinach has 76% of the detectable samples have um, a pesticide called permethrin. And one of the reasons we're concerned about the presence of this pesticide, you know, on so many of the spinach samples is that in, you know, some recent human epidemiological studies, what we see is that children who are exposed to this class of pesticides um, it can be associated with adverse neurological outcomes. So one of the outcomes sometimes we see in these studies correlating exposure to pyrethroids is um, increased incidence of ADHD. Mm, Wow. Dr. Galligan, I want to take this over to you and have you talk to us a little bit more about the health implications of the pesticides that were found in the Dirty Dozen. Um, For some of our listeners who may be hearing this information for the first time, or perhaps this is their first exposure to the EWG's shopping guide, you know, annual shopper's guide. Um, talk to us about this so that uh, our listeners understand why 
why you go through this exercise every year to put this together. Why should we be concerned about the health implications of these pesticides? Right. So pesticides by design are toxic, right? They're, they're designed, they're intended to kill a living organism, like an insect or a fungus or a weed. So it shouldn't be that surprising to learn that, that these are toxic to non-target organisms like humans, right? We're not the target of these pesticides, but we're being, we could potentially be impacted by them. And Lexi touched on a couple of effects, but pesticide exposures have been linked to a, a wide variety of, of health harms in humans. So cancer would be a, a major one, a ser- very concerning one, obviously. Um, impacts on the brain, like Lexi just mentioned, developmental neurotoxicity. Endocrine disruption or, or impacts on hormones and how we reproduce and how our metabolism works. And then, of course, the concern extends beyond humans to the environment. Many pesticides have been linked to killing bees and other pollinators, which are really critical for our global food system. And so we try to capture all of that in the shopper's guide by looking at sort of the overall pesticide load. We know that some pesticides are more harmful than others, but there's a lot of uncertainty about how pesticides, when they're in these complex mixtures as we're exposed to in real life, how they could impact us. So we focus on the overall pesticide load and, and, and weight all pesticides sort of equally in our calculations to make sure that we're capturing all of these different health effects and, and all the uncertainty sort of inherent to pesticide toxicity. Got it. Now, Dr. Temkin, back to you. Does the USDA test for all pesticides in production? Is this a fully comprehensive test? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, unfortunately, the answer to that, though, is that, no, it's not entirely comprehensive. And um, I will say, though, it is shocking how many sort of pesticides we do have to test for. So, I think there's estimates of approximately 600 different active ingredient pesticides that, you know, we could be looking for that are specifically on foods. Um, And the analytical methods that the USDA scientists use are really good. So they do cover, you know, 400 or more of these pesticides, which is, I think, pretty incredible when you do think about it. Um, However, there are certain ones that are left out and certain ones that are pretty concerning to not include in these data sets. So one example of this um, is the herbicide glyphosate. I think a lot of people have heard about this, you know, pesticide in the news um, and are pretty familiar with the, with it. So it's the active ingredient that's used in Roundup, and it's actually the most widely used herbicide in the U.S. Um, so even though it's used in the highest amount, it's not included in the USDA testing, um, primarily just because of analytical reasons. So it's harder to test. Glyphosate has to be tested by itself, whereas a lot of other pesticides can be tested sort of in a big um, mixture together, which helps scientists save on costs and things like that. Um, But one of the reasons why we're really concerned about glyphosate and why it's important is because it has been linked to an increased risk of of cancer, and it is often found on children's foods. So EWG did a series of testing, you know, a year or two years ago, looking at glyphosate in oats. And we found that there are really concerning levels of this pesticide in foods that children are eating every day. Um, so that's just one example of how the USDA is 
testing isn't totally comprehensive and why that might be a problem. Yeah, that's definitely a problem. I want to let our listeners know that we're going to be taking a quick commercial break here pretty soon, but I highly recommend that you open up a new tab in your web browser. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com, but open up a new tab in your web browser and go to ewg.org, and you're going to find the 2020 Shopper's Guide to Pesticides in Produce right there, and you can click on it and follow along as we talk with Dr. Temkin and Dr. Galligan. But don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking about the Environmental Working Group's 2020 Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce. And we're joined by two of the toxicologists on staff with EWG, Dr. Alexis Temkin and Dr. Thomas Galligan. And we're talking about the Dirty Dozen. We're talking about, um, you know, all of their findings in the report, which is free and available on their website at EWG.org. Dr. Galligan, I want to go back to you. Talk to us about what the USDA data showed with raisins this year, and please include some information about what they found, and I'm going to say this wrong, uh, chlorpiferous, something along those lines. Correct me, though. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So raisins were the big surprise for us this year. So typically, the shopper's guide is just focused on fresh fruits and veggies. But 
For the first time since 2007, USDA included raisins in their test this year, and they caught our eye because 99% of conventional, which is to say non-organic raisin samples, had two or more pesticides on them. On average, they had 13, just over 13, and the maximum was 26. So one sample had 26 pesticides on it, which was very, very shocking for us, especially considering that raisins are a really popular snack food for children. Over half of the, of the raisins eaten every year in the U.S. are consumed by people under the age of 15. So this was really concerning for us. And it got even more interesting when we realized that some of the organic raisin samples were also pretty contaminated, uh, which we think is coming from cross-contamination, um, you know, pesticide dripped from, from, from fields nearby, near, nearby and that kind of thing. So that was interesting. And one of the pesticides that was on raisins that we were concerned about is chlorpyrifos, which has been linked to developmental neurotoxicity, which is to say it can, it can harm the brain as it develops for, mm. in children. And it's, it was found on 5% of conventional raisin samples and 6% of, of organic raisin samples. So this is, a, this is a really concerning pesticide. It was banned in the EU, and it was supposed to be banned in the U.S. as well. But the Trump administration stopped that from happening, even though the Obama administration had set that process, sort of, mm. had got that process started. Luckily, some states throughout the country have, our, have banned it and are putting those measures into effect now. So it was banned in California just recently. It's already been banned in Hawaii since 2018. And New York has banned it going into effect in 2021. So now we need to make sure we're buying those California raisins, just like the commercials were telling us all along. So, (laughs) Dr. Temkin, back to you. Let's talk about the flip side of this report. Uh, We've talked a little bit about the Dirty Dozen. Now talk to us about the Clean 15. What are the criteria for making that list? And do the items have to be completely pesticide-free? Yeah, so the Clean 15 section of this report is kind of um, the good news section. So um, we do know that there are several commodities that are lower in pesticide residues. Um, and that's great because that means that consumers can buy conventional versions of these um, fruits and vegetables and not have to worry about pesticide load, whereas the Dirty Dozen um, may be better to choose organic if you want to reduce pesticide exposure. So. As I mentioned earlier, we have this list of 47. Um, The top 12 make up the dirty dozen and the bottom 15 make up the clean 15. So they're not necessarily all pesticide free, um, but with the exception of cabbage, all other products that were tested positive for four or fewer pesticides. So, you know, Thomas just gave this example of one raisin sample having up to 26. with the Clean 15, pretty much all have four or fewer. And avocados and sweet corn, which are the cleanest, they have fewer than 2% of those samples had any detectable pesticides. So some of them are relatively pesticide-free. That's really interesting. And, and good to know that there are some choices out there, you know, with some of our food choices in the produce aisle. But Dr. Galligan, talk to us about some of the items on the Clean 15 list and any important factoids you want to be sure our listeners know. Uh, Dr. Temkin mentioned a few. Are there any other factoids that we should know about the Clean 15? I think Alexi touched on most of the ones that 
that jump out to me. Um, gotcha. I just take great comfort in knowing that, that there are conventional fruits and vegetables out there that are relatively low in pesticides. And I, I hope that your listeners and our readers and consumers in general uh, can, can find that heartening like I do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Dr. Temkin, back to you. You know, you would think that on a show like Go Green Radio that's been around for 12 years, we would have covered this adequately. But some of our listeners, you know, are, are young adults. They're buying their own food for the first time. Um, and maybe their uh, caregivers bought organic. Maybe they didn't. But to make sure that we get this out here in this particular episode, talk to us about what the science tells us about the benefits of eating organic produce. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I would say, first off, one of the most encouraging things about, um, you know, what recent studies have been showing us is that when you do switch to an organic diet, you pretty rapidly will be able to see reductions in um, the measurements of synthetic pesticides in your body. So there are a lot of studies that essentially they're called intervention studies. So they'll look at groups of individuals or families um, and test their urine pretty much is what we usually use for sampling. So they'll measure the levels of pesticides, you know, that are actually detected in their bodies, what they're exposed to, and then have them switch to an organic diet and then do the same measurements, you know, a few days later. And, really in a matter of days, you can actually see these reductions. Um, and that's very encouraging. So we do know that switching to an organic diet helps reduce the levels of pesticides. And then um, in terms of health effects, there was a, a big study that came out, I believe in 2018, and it was largely based on women in France. But what it showed was that higher frequency of organic food consumption was actually associated with a lower incidence of cancer. Um, and we've seen, you know, other incidences where certain pesticides that can be found on fruits and vegetables do in fact have carcinogenic concerns. Um, and then the other big health effect that I would point to um, is improved fertility. So there's actually a group at, of researchers at Harvard who use um, an exposure metric to pesticides very similar to the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15 list. So they look at people that have eaten, you know, these fruits and vegetables that have high levels compared to the people that have eaten the fruits and vegetables with the low, lowest levels of pesticides. And they typically see that higher residue exposure is associated um, with decreased fertility um, and worse birth outcomes. Hmm. That's really interesting. And speaking of birth outcomes, Dr. Galligan, why is it particularly important for caregivers of small children to know about the shopping guide? Yeah, that's a great question. So we recommend that everyone make an effort to reduce their pesticide exposures for the variety of health concerns that we've touched on before. But it is widely known and recognized that children are more sensitive to pesticides than adults. And that's just because they're smaller, so they have, you know, a higher dose effectively, and uh, they're still developing. We touched on this concept of developmental neurotoxicity a couple of times, and that's, you know, um, impacts of pesticides on the developing brain. So if you, if you cause an effect early in life, it can, it can have these long-lasting effects throughout the rest of life. So it's really important that we try to find ways as caregivers to children to reduce children's pesticide loads. 
And we think that this shopper's guide is a great way to do that because the other facet of this is that it's important for all people and especially children to eat lots and lots of fruits and vegetables. And Mm so this guide should help consumers figure out ways that they can maximize their consumption of fruits and veggies without having to compromise on pesticide exposures. Absolutely. So this is kind of like, you know, a lot of movements are afoot in different parts of the country to minimize children's exposure to lead and various other, uh, you know, environmental pollutants. And so I would encourage my listeners who are involved in those types of campaigns, anything that has outreach to the caregivers of young children, whether it's child care you know, uh, workers, whether it's social, you know, workers, whether it's pediatricians and, and parent groups, PTAs, if you're already doing outreach to the caregivers of young children, this is a very simple link straight from the EWG.org website, the Environmental Working Group's Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce. You can very easily share this with the same lists, the same outreach and communication tools that you're using for those types of campaigns. So I really want to encourage my listeners um, who might be involved with reaching out in any way to caregivers of small children to include a link to the Environmental Working Group's um, Shopper's Guide in that communication. Dr. Temkin, I want to go to you because there's a quote in the Shopper's Guide that I'd like for you to explain to us. Here's the quote. An EWG investigation published this year found that for most pesticides, the EPA does not apply additional restrictions to safeguard children's health. Help us explain that in more detail. Yeah, I can definitely unpack that a little bit. And what we're referring to here is um, part of the legislation called the Food Quality Protection Act, which was passed in 1996. And this legislation was actually, it was pretty much a landmark legislation that said, you know, really for the first time, you have to incorporate children's health into these pesticide assessments. And you really have to ensure that, um, you know, children's health is going to be protected and that they're going to be safe from exposure to these, um, to pesticides and to potential harmful exposures. And the way that they did that was that they included this um, safety factor for children's health. So essentially you could apply an additional 10x safety factor, which would reduce the concentration of pesticides allowed on certain fruits and vegetables Um, unless you could 100% confirm that there was going to be no risk to children. And so this year, EWG looked at a lot of different pesticide um, risk assessments that were done by the EPA to see how often they actually used that 10x safety factor. And we found that the majority of the time, that 10x factor had been reduced to 1x. So effectively, there was no additional consideration um, to safeguard children's health. That is so sad and disappointing. And I appreciate you guys bringing this information to consumers because in a little while uh, before we end the show, we're going to talk about ways that people can get involved. You know, when they hear something like this and they want to help take action, um, I'm going to ask you guys to give us some ways to do that. But thank you so much for shining a light on that situation. We're going to take a quick commercial break, folks. But when we come back, we have so much more with Dr. Temkin and Dr. Galligan from the Environmental Working Group. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Can you hear me? Hear me. 
your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch you up really quickly. We're talking about the Environmental Working Group, or EWG's, 2020 Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce. And our guests today are Drs. Alexis Temkin and Thomas Galligan, both toxicologists with the Environmental Working Group. So, Dr. Galligan, to you, there's a section in the Shopper's Guide that discusses genetically engineered crops. What do we need to know about GMOs when we're shopping in the produce section? Yes, yeah, so GMOs aren't part of our ranking system for the Dirty Dozen or the Clean 15, but we mention them in the guide for two reasons. So one, we, we uh, support a federal mandate for all products to disclose any GMO ingredients. We basically feel that consumers have the right to know if they're consuming GMOs. But then in the context of pesticides, some GMOs have been engineered to be resistant to pesticides, which could then allow for elevated and overuse of pesticides, which we take serious issue with sort of across the board. And any, any measure that allows for the overuse of pesticides, we take issue with. So within the shopper's guide, um, GMOs are irrelevant because we think that some GMOs could lead to overuse of pesticides. Got it. And that if, makes uh, perfect sense. For yeah, consumers go ahead. looking to avoid GMOs, they can, yeah, sorry. Uh, consumers who are looking to avoid GMOs, they can opt for certified organic, U.S. certified organic foods, which can't contain uh, GMO ingredients. Got it. That's important to note. Uh, Dr. Temkin, I, I want to go to you now. 
peppers did not make it onto the Dirty Dozen list, but they are given special attention in the Shopper's Guide. What should our listeners know about peppers? Sure. So um, peppers, and we're talking about sweet bell peppers as well as hot peppers, um, used to actually be number 12 on the Dirty Dozen list um, up until last year when kale uh, came back as number three, and then they got moved to the 13th spot. So we sort of incorporate them in what we call the Dirty Dozen Plus list. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reason we do and the reason we like to highlight peppers and hot peppers is that from the most recent testing data that we have, um, there were concerning levels of what are called organophosphate pesticides. So chlorpyrifos is an example of this class of organophosphates. And there are a few others that were detected um, at pretty high levels in peppers and hot peppers. And so, like Thomas mentioned with chlorpyrifos, this entire class of pesticides, the organophosphates, um, have really been linked to harm to the developing brain. So when you look at exposure to these pesticides as a class, you see adverse behavioral outcomes, adverse neurological outcomes when children have been exposed during pregnancy as well at a young age. So because these pesticides are so concerning from a health perspective, we like to highlight um, that they can be found at high levels on this crop in particular, um, so that if people, you know, really like to consume hot peppers, um, that that might be something they do organic or is something that they're feeding to young children. Um, We like to point that out. Thank you for that. I think that's really an an important underscore um, because that is a a pretty popular item uh, in the produce aisle. I know in my own grocery store, um, there's a huge pepper section. You can get any kind and any color you ever thought of. So, Dr. Galligan, back to you. Um, I want to get to the advocacy piece of this because we've talked about, you know, the data and the findings, but, um, you know, one of the big functions of the Environmental Working Group is to advocate for better policy that protects consumers from these types of of harm uh, scenarios around chemicals and and other things. So let's talk about pesticide regulations in the U.S. The USDA states that a goal of its tests is to provide data on pesticide residues in food with a focus that is most likely, you know, foods that are most likely consumed by infants and children. What is EWG's position on the USDA's progress toward that goal? Yeah, so for for the reasons that we've discussed already, this is a really important goal, and we are fully supportive of that of that goal of of focusing on children and infants when it comes to pesticide exposures. Unfortunately, the program, the USDA's program, doesn't always follow through on that. So a great example of that would be what Lexi mentioned earlier, which is glyphosate, which is not included in the USDA's tests, but are found on many foods consumed by children, like oats and oat-based cereals. And then raisins are another great example where these are widely consumed by kids, right? Over half of raisins consumed in the U.S. are eaten by by children, but they hadn't been tested since 2007. So if this is really the goal of the USDA's program, they can certainly do more to expand it to really hit that focus and achieve that goal of protecting children. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Dr. Temkin, to you, this is a big question, so I want you to take your time with this. Why is it problematic that pesticide regulation is a function of the federal government, 
but enforcement falls largely to the states. Talk us through that. Yeah, so um, this, I think, is also sort of a common, a common thing that happens with enforcement of chemical exposure in general. This is also sometimes something that we see with um, looking at drinking water and, you know, states' ability to set different standards than um, the federal government. But with regards to pesticides, um, there's a lot of aspects about pesticide use and regulation that are important for public health, whether that's, you know, the health of workers who are applying pesticides, the health of residents who live near agricultural practices, you know, farms and fields that are applying pesticides, and then also the general public who's consuming these fruits and vegetables um, that could potentially have pesticide residues on it. And so I think what you see is that some states are stronger in terms of their pesticide enforcement and other states can be weaker. And I don't necessarily know, you know, the details of every state, but in California, for instance, they have some of the strongest pesticide monitoring data, for instance. So, you know, when we're actually looking at data and trying to sort of answer some of these questions, going to California is is really great because they have good monitoring of which crops are getting how much of each pesticide. They do some of their own testing of commodities, um, which we can sometimes look at to sort of supplement the USDA data. Um, But that public information allows, you know, academic researchers to then look at um, areas that could be more vulnerable to pesticide exposure. Um, We have a better idea of what pesticides are being used where, and some other states that might not necessarily be the case. So you kind of have this patchwork of public health protection, um, you know, that ultimately you would want to be very strong everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can't help thinking about, you know, and, and I don't want to shift too far away from the shopper's guide, you know, itself. But when we're talking about the way that pesticides can enter the environment, I mean, of course, in our food is is one way. But, you know, we do talk about agricultural runoff and how some of these chemicals that are used on crops end up in our drinking water. And so if you have states that are upstream and more laxed in the enforcement of federal guidelines around pesticide use, not only could that impact the people living in that state, but um, certainly it can impact the people downstream in their water supply. And of course, because food is a global commodity, um, any food that's that's grown in a state that's more laxed in their pesticide regulation um, that's shipped out to, to other places could have an impact on people in other states, but also around the world. And so, um, you know, without more oversight and and without the absolute commitment on the part of every state to follow and to enforce these regulations, uh, you know, really can create an unknown impact on the unsuspecting public um, who may think that they're they're being perfectly protected because they know about some federal regulation. Dr. Galligan, I'd like to give you a chance to to comment on this if you have anything else to add. No, I, I think I think you've touched on it perfectly. It's um, you know, different states are going to have different capacities for testing and you know no state is existing in a vacuum and, and foods produced in one state are certainly going to end up elsewhere. So having it all to the states um, can lead to inconsistency, for sure. 
It really can, because one of the things that we do know, and we talk about this a lot on Go Green Radio, we talk about uh, public policy as it relates to environmental protection. Having great policy is is wonderful, but it's really not where the rubber meets the road. It's in the enforcement of the policy. And, you know, enforcement is is completely tied to money. It takes money to hire enough people to be out in the field enforcing whatever public policy it may it may be. And, you know, different states are in different budgetary scenarios. And oftentimes it is these types of policies that become the first on the chopping block when we have to look at what can be budgeted. Regulatory enforcement often ends up being axed. And so um, I think it's important for our listeners to understand this um, as they think about their own advocacy journey when it comes to um, being a part of the conversation to improve the regulatory oversight of these of these policies. Dr. Galligan, I want to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about the pesticide registration process and moreover what improvements the Environmental Working Group would like to see in that process. Yes, so when a manufacturer in the U.S. wants to put a new pesticide on the market, they have to submit an application to the EPA. And the EPA then performs a risk assessment from the information provided and makes, makes a determination about how it can be used. And they set tolerance levels, which is the amount allowed on the final uh, produce. A bit, one of the biggest problems with this is that the data coming to the EPA, going to the EPA, comes from industry. And there have been cases where the industry has either ignored certain findings or hidden or, you know, obfuscated findings to prevent action against them. So this is a really complicated issue. So that's just one of the major issues. Mm -hmm. The others include there are loopholes in in this law. So this is the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, or, or FIFRA. And there's a loophole in this act that allows pesticides to enter the market before testing is done, before an assessment has been done. And actually, Dr. Galligan, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. I hate to cut you off, but we do need to take a quick commercial break. But we're going to talk about FIFRA in just a moment. So don't go away, folks. We've got so much more to cover on Go Green Radio. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am so glad that you're with us. Um, in case you just tuned in, we're talking about this year's Environmental Working Group Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce. And our guests today are two toxicologists with the Environmental Working Group, or EWG, Drs. Alexis Temkin and Thomas Galligan. Before we went to break, we were talking about the federal insecticide, fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, FIFRA. Dr. Timken, you want to talk to us about some of the shortcomings involved with FIFRA? Yeah, so so right before the break, Thomas started getting into this. Um, and this is a super important point to reiterate that one of the major um, concerns and sort of shortcomings of FIFRA is that when a manufacturer is applying, you know, for EPA approval of a pesticide, they are the ones that are sending EPA all of the data that's saying, you know, this pesticide um, is safe to use, it's not toxic. Um, And they have a series of toxicity tests and environmental tests that they have to perform under this law. So EPA does say, you know, you have to do these things um, in order to be registered. But there are also places where um, EPA can issue waivers saying that they don't need to have a complete toxicity data set. Um, But so, you know, that creates this sort of... vested interest where the manufacturer is supplying the data. And then often you'll see academic researchers researching the same pesticide sort of later on once it's already come to market. Um, And EPA, of course, can incorporate that data, but sometimes it takes a little while for that data to be generated. That might show, you know, harmful effects could be potentially occurring at exposure levels in the general population. Um, And sort of to that point, there there's also this interesting part of FIFRA called conditional registrations. And this is an area where it's sort of a loophole that was created that said um, pesticides could come to market without full toxicity data um, being submitted under what was typically thought of as sort of rare circumstances. But what we've seen is that um, the way it's been used is not really in unique and rare circumstances at all it's actually been used quite frequently. And there's no real good tracking of the conditional registration. So there are several pesticides that are, you know, quote unquote, conditionally registered that haven't gone through the full EPA assessment that other pesticides have. So that's one of the, you know, bigger issues. um, And, you know, something that I think we would like to see a little bit more work done on. Absolutely. And and Dr. Galligan, I'm going to go back to you because I, I did interrupt you to take a commercial break. You were you were all fired up, I could tell. You were ready to go on a rip on, on FIFRA. <laughs> so I don't want to I don't want to dampen you in that at all. So if there's anything else you'd like to add, go right ahead. Sure. I think I just wanted to reemphasize that there's also that issue with the Food Quality Protection Act that Lexi mentioned earlier, where we're not seeing sufficient protection of children in the way pesticides are, are regulated here in the U.S. Well, and I think this is just such a fundamental issue. I mean, 
whether you have children or not makes no difference. In a way, we should all be child advocates because um, for such a, a wide variety of reasons, but they're so defenseless, so vulnerable, and they're counting on all of us, um, not just their parents and their grandparents, but all of society to protect them at the, their most vulnerable stage of development. So I really appreciate what you said there. And I also want to ask you another question, Dr. Galgan. Um, you know, we, we've talked about the individual uh, pesticide impact and the health impacts of, of individual pesticides, but there's growing research that the synergistic effects of multiple pesticides could be exceptionally harmful. And I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about that and and tell us whether or not you think or EWG thinks that's being adequately studied and regulated in the U.S. Absolutely. So this is another issue with the the uh, federal regulations around pesticides is it sort of considers individual pesticides by themselves, whereas in real life, we're going to be exposed to multiple pesticides. Just for example, think about that one raisin sample that had 26 pesticides. It, it, it's really hard to predict how the human body will react when it is sort of being confronted with and bombarded with all these different pesticides at once. And there's evidence to suggest that they can have these synergistic effects, which is to say more than additive. So if you have two pesticides, the, the cumulative effect is beyond what you would predict from just adding those two effects together. And this is called synergism. And this is not accounted for in FIFRA, for example. So it's not really being uh, used to determine safe levels of, of pesticides on foods, which is a huge problem. And and what, I mean, what could be done? I mean, I'm sure EWG is working on this, um, but but... What can be done to rectify that? What are some steps that could be taken? I think that an increased reliance on human epidemiological data. So Mm. looking at the real world data and real world exposures will help us to sort of untangle all of these these complexities and confusions around pesticides. And as Alexi mentioned earlier, there have been several studies linking lower overall pesticide exposures to health benefits. So if we, if we focus more on, on those data, on the real data in real life with real exposures, I think we'll, we'll find more clarity and more safety from, from those studies. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, I had one of your colleagues on back in the fall and we were talking about PFAS and um, how the initial lawsuit um, that exposed this whole thing, the initial um, payment from that was used to create one of the largest human health studies in history. 70,000 people um, were tested for PFAS and then, you know, they're their personal health histories were studied, and and that was a pretty remarkable undertaking. Um, But nothing like that that I know of has been attempted when it comes to human um, impact uh, from pesticides. Um, And I don't know how something like that would be funded, but, I mean, it, it, it certainly begs the question, shouldn't we find that answer? Because it could be one of the most important public health um 
you know, uncoverings that, that we could um, find, our vulnerabilities. What are the human vulnerabilities to this soup of, of pesticides in our bodies? You know, given that, yeah, and go ahead, Alexis, yes. Sorry, I was just going to add in because that made me think of something. Um, so there is, it's interesting, it's called the um, Agricultural Health Study. And this mm-hmm. is a really big, um, I believe it's government funded, um, study looking at primarily um, agricultural workers and their exposure to pesticides and sort of the long-term health effects. And mm-hmm. we have sort of seen pretty, you know, concerning health effects um, coming out of that data set as well. Um, it definitely could be improved, and we definitely need some other ones looking at dietary exposure. Um, mm-hmm. But just, just wanted to highlight that there is some evidence there, right, and that, you know, we are seeing exposure to a variety of pesticides linked with health harms and adverse health outcomes. Good to know, and thank you for that. And and back to you, Dr. Temkin. Um, for our listeners who are probably chomping at the bit right now and, and they want to get involved with EWG's work in this area, what can they do? Give us some concrete action. Yeah, this is definitely, I think, um, you know, one of the core aspects of EWG's work is that we don't want to just give people information and then have them not really know what to do with it. Um, we like to really give you know, actionable items that that people can take right away. Um, And so the first thing I would say is, you know, use the shopper's guide. Look at our shopper's guide to produce and use it while you shop. Um, You know, we generally advocate that consuming organic foods, you know, is preferable. But the whole reason that the shopper's guide is there is that we know, you know, consumers don't always have access to everything organic and there can be other sort of, um, you know, things getting in the way of why you might not have it organic diet, but you Mm -hmm. can buy the clean 15 conventional and the dirty dozen as a guide to buy organic and still have, you know, high levels of confidence that you're going to be reducing your pesticide exposure. Um, The other thing is really to still eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Thomas touched on this. Um, You know, this report, I think, can sometimes seem like we're saying, you know, there's pesticides everywhere, but what we're really saying is fruits and vegetables are important to have in your diet, um, and here's a way to sort of, you know, get get the most out of that. And then the other thing is to sign up really for our newsletter. There's We work on pesticides all year round, and not just, you know, once a year when the shopper's guide comes out. So a lot of the work that we do on pesticides um, is often writing comment letters to the EPA when there's, you know, a new registration mm-hmm. review coming up about information that we think EPA should consider um, in there and, and yep we and you give everyday people, people exactly you give everyday people a way to do this boy i could talk to you guys all day and i'm so grateful that you you joined us and gave us all of this amazing information check their website out at ewg.org thanks guys for being with the show and thanks to all of our listeners for joining us we'll be here same time same place next week with more go green radio and until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.